You are listening to The Political Periscope, a weekly podcast brought to you by Radio WNET. Interviews on international politics, security, geopolitics, economy and more. Every Thursday at 7 p.m. Today's guest of The Political Periscope is Brian Glynn Williams, full professor of Islamic history at the University of Massachusetts. Political Periscope. Yesterday, Joe Biden answered to the question if the US is going to send F-16 to Ukraine. And the answer was simple, no. Do you think really US won't send it? Or maybe in some time the decision will change? You know, it's, it's interesting because at the beginning of the war, America and the NATO allies were rather timid about the weaponry they were giving to help the Ukrainians. You may remember the, the humor and laughter around the world when the Germans said they would give 5,000 helmets and nothing more. But now we've seen a huge escalation in the willingness of America and the NATO allies to send in more bigger weapon systems. You know, they're, they're, they're sending in, of course, the, the Leopard 2 tanks and the Challenger tanks from, from Britain and now the M1 Abrams main battle tanks. Uh, so I think a lot of the timidity, a lot of the fear of the early days has been replaced by the sense that we can actually give the Ukrainians state-of-the-art technology. I don't know yet what the debate is going to end up when it comes to F-16s, but I know there is a lot of pressure on Biden from the Pentagon, uh, from uh, war hawks in both parties, in Republican and Democrat parties, who believe The, the key to turning the battle is not just giving the Ukrainians main battle tanks, but giving them F-16s to take on the Russian Air Force, which has had superiority, although they haven't had supremacy. And Atakam's rockets. Yes, you know, the, we, the, the most effective systems we've given uh, the Ukrainians for going on the offensive has been these mobile HIMAR multiple launch rocket systems. That is what allowed them to do the offensive in Kherson down in the south there and to push the offensive in the north as well. So I think the long distance rocket systems are absolutely crucial for two reasons. One, to stop Russia from doing an offensive in Donbass uh, when the spring comes and also allowing the Ukrainians to go on another offensive and move deeper into that uh, contested area in Donbass. Many people say, uh, including Ukrainians, of course, that you cannot win the war only fighting on your territory, only defending. You need to attack. Do you think that uh, U.S. administration will let Ukraine attack Russia? Absolutely not. I think that is crossing the line, the Rubicon, for the Biden administration. They will do everything they can to give them weapon systems that can be used not long range, but medium or short range inside of Ukraine. And there is some question about whether support will come from the Biden administration for any moves on Crimea. You know, I think that the Ukrainian people have said, Zelensky has said, ultimately they will march south and try getting Crimea. But I don't know if they're going to have support from the Biden administration because, of course, Crimea was part of Russia until 1950s. And the population is you know, majority in Crimea today are Russians. Well, but it was also part of Ukraine and uh, in 1991 uh, the people of Crimea decided legally in a referendum to be in Ukraine. Well, that's true. I, I think, you know, it was it, the, the autonomous Crimean Republic was given by Khrushchev to Ukraine and the laws were established when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991-92. They had the, the treaties that said the borders are now unviolable. You can't violate the borders that were left by the Soviet Union. And of course, Putin overturned that by invading not just uh, 
Ossetia and Georgia, uh, but also Donbas and, and Crimea. So I think you know, if you're going to follow the regulations created in Almaty, Kazakhstan, for the collapse of the Soviet Union, then territorial integrity has to be recognized, and Crimea does belong, as you said, to the Ukrainian people. There is this threat that the U.S. will somehow abandon Ukraine, uh, maybe not really abandon, but the shift will go more towards uh, the situation with China, because China is a bigger threat than, Rus uh, than Russia to the U.S. Yeah, I have a fear about the Republicans. You know, uh, the Democrats have been strongly supporting Ukraine, and a lot of old-school, uh, you know, Cold War-style Republicans have. But there's an element inside the Republican Party that is pro-Putin, people who surrounded Trump. Uh, a lot of Trump acolytes, Trump followers, uh, don't like Zelensky and they like Putin. I'm afraid that the Republican House of Congress will vote somehow in the next few months against sending more weapon systems uh, to uh, Ukraine. Uh, but at the moment, you know, I don't see China doing anything aggressive across the Straits of Formosa towards Taiwan because they've seen just how badly it worked out for Putin. On the economic level, it's been devastating for Russia. You know, their, their economy went from being number 11 to number 20 in a matter of months. All the sanctions by the governments and unofficial, you know, groups like BMW or, or Boeing, these have crushed Russia economically. And that is something China has seen and has taken lessons from. As they're recovering from this COVID pandemic, the last thing China needs now is to invade Taiwan and have global sanctions against them of the sort that have crippled Russia. We are here on a conference about dissolving Russian Federation. Do you think it's a real scenario? I wouldn't say I'm a true believer. I'm more of an agnostic. I can't see the Russian population disintegrating. You know, th th those lands, they consider their rodina, the homeland in Russian, the, the, the soil of their ancestors. You know, they, they, they believe that that's integral to their, their country. And they, they won't decolonize it the same way, say, the Portuguese did with Brazil or the, the Spanish did with uh, Mexico or whatever. This is the Rodina, the homeland. So I'm not optimistic that there will be some disintegration of Russia into a independent Chechnya or Dagestan or Tatarstan, uh, etc. Uh, I think the country is still far from that sort of level of, of centrifugal disintegration. Especially that many people are rather waiting for someone else to do it, to decolonize Russia. They don't really want to do it uh, themselves. Previous uh, person I interviewed told me that, yes, of course, we want decolonization. We want to divide Russia in 80 states, but, but we want the victors of the war to do it. Yeah, you know, and of course, nobody has the appetite for going into the Russian Federation. You know, this is a nuclear power. They may have been humbled and humiliated by their invasion of Ukraine, but it is still a world power. And I don't think anybody has the appetite for helping, you know, uh, people of Kamchatka or Irkutsk or, or Omsk or St. Petersburg break this, this massive 11 time zone country up into separate little uh, republics. I think... You, you, you won't find any appetite on anybody as an external force to go inside Russia and, and, and do to Russia what happened to the Soviet Union. What happened to the Soviet Union? I heard that the US didn't actually let Soviet Union collapse fully, to full extent, to split in many, to shatter in many, many small states uh, because they wanted some counterweight for China. So it is also one argument for not dissolving Russia, that there will be a vacuum of power in this part of the world. And that's true. You know, uh, China economically is far more powerful than Russia. Russia is basically just a gas station. That's its only real export commodity. Um, and if Russia were to disintegrate, you'd expect the Chinese to go over the Ussuri River. You know, the Chinese and Russians have fought 
for over 150 years over that contested zone, you know, around Manchuria. So I think China would be delighted at some levels to see Russia fall apart because they feel that they lost territory to the Russians going back to 1905. So what solution do you see for the war in Ukraine? Because uh, you said that you're not really sure about Crimea going back to Ukraine. Uh, you said that definitely the US won't let Ukraine strike Russia on Russian soil. So uh, what to do, how to end this war so everyone's happy? I think we, the West, NATO, uh, the Biden administration, or, or whoever comes along after Biden, needs to realize one thing. This war is not just about Vladimir Putin. This is about the soul of the Russian people. They are the ones supporting this war. Russia needs to be decisively crushed on the battlefield. It needs to be taught a lesson for generations to come, as America did in Vietnam. We lost that war and it taught us a big lesson. Don't launch these sort of overseas adventures. Uh, we lost the lesson when we went to Iraq. Wars, when they send home lots of body bags and cost your population a, a huge price in blood and gold, teach a population a lesson. We need to stay unified, strong. We need to keep giving them heavy weaponry and weapon systems to give the Ukrainians the chance to go on the offensive. Russia needs to lose in Donbass. It needs to lose everything in Kherson, Mariupol, all those towns that were conquered by the Russians since February 20, last year, 22. All those territories that are conquered need to be retrieved and brought back into Ukraine for total 100% victory, for stability and safety, not just of Ukraine, but of all Europe. But after this war, Russia would still have uh, nuclear weapons, uh, will still be a big country. And uh, what if you have another Putin, another Tsar, another, uh, I don't know, another Stalin, uh, maybe a revolution, whatever. But uh, can we really live with Russia still there? You know, I think we have to face the reality that Russia has this imperial past. It's in their soul, the Russian way of fighting. You know, scorched earth, mass cannon fodder tactics. My hope is that when you have a massive defeat, like the one I foresee happening in Ukraine, if the West stays united and the Ukrainians keep fighting for their homeland, for their families, with the spirit we've seen, remarkable spirit of the Ukrainians, that Russia will... I think it be taught an important lesson. When you lose that many people, you know, according to one estimate, 110,000 killed and wounded, uh, and you lose economy that badly, and it starts biting into every person's average life. When people get drafted from the streets of Chelyabinsk or, or, or small towns in Russia to fight and die in Putin's war, and they come home in caskets, this body bags, the, the, blow, the, the blood flow uh, of Russians has to create some pushback, some rejection of this adventurism, of this bloody foreign policy that I think the Russians never expected to get this bad. No one expected them to be defeated this badly on the battlefield the way they have been. The Russians we thought were 20 foot tall, 15 foot tall. Now they're about four foot tall. I think they're learning their lesson every day you send more bodies back home to Russia. This war is also shifting uh, many aspects of life in Europe, uh, especially US involvement in Europe. The tendency was rather to get back home maybe, but get back to America. Uh, but now we are we are having more troops, more equipment from the US in Poland, in Germany, in other countries. But there is also some economic involvement. Are you familiar with uh, the concept of Free Seas Initiative? No, I'm not. But I, I will say this. You know, there's a lot of worries 
about the economic impact of the war on Europe this winter. You know, Putin mocked Europeans that it's going to be a cold winter when he cut off the Nord Stream uh, gas pipeline uh, to Germany uh, and their worries about Europe freezing. Well, that attempt at blackmail failed because Americans began shipping liquid natural gas. Uh, the oil reserves of Poland and Germany survived and everybody has switched from buying Russian oil to switching to American and other sources of oil, North Sea, for example. So they have lo- Russia has lost its biggest customer, the European Union. Uh, and of course, shipping it to China is, is much more expensive. So I think that effort to blackmail the European Union, uh, to blackmail NATO countries uh, into giving up support for Ukraine has backfired tremendously. And there's no way the Germans will ever go back to buying Russian oil again. Are you not afraid that American people will just be tired with the war, with the support for Ukraine, uh, while they have uh, their own problems at home, uh, like healthcare, universities, uh, other social issues? I'm worried about the Republicans. I'm not worried about the Democrats. You know, they see this as an extension of the Cold War. Uh, in some ways, they're almost acting more like Ronald Reagan, who's Republican, ironically. Joe Biden has been very consistent, very determined. Uh, when Zelensky came to give his speech to both houses of Congress in, in Washington, both houses stood and applauded, but there were some Republicans who refused to stand. Don't forget, Donald Trump blackmailed Zelensky about the, the weapons uh, to try getting him to investigate Biden. Uh, many of these Trumpian Republicans don't like uh, Zelensky, they don't like Ukraine, and they're, they're, they're almost pro-Putin. I'm afraid that the House and Congress, uh, which is controlled by these re- pro-Trump Republicans, may start vetoing supplies of weapons to Ukraine, that, that the Republicans will lose their, their determination and their stance of standing up to Putin because they're under Trump's influence. But Trump called Putin his friend, and he attacked Zelensky. This speaks volumes about the party that used to be the party of Ronald Reagan, but it's now the party of Trump, who has this almost nefarious, insidious love affair with Vladimir Putin. What's the level of Russian propaganda in the US? Does it really affect the society? It does. It comes in one channel, Fox News. Fox News by Rupert Murdoch is this right-wing channel in America. You know, you have three main uh, news channels in America. Uh, Fox News, which is right-wing, uh, it is pro-Trump. It is almost like a, a propaganda outlet for Trump. Then you have CNN, which is sort of moderate, and MSNBC, which is on the left. Um, every single night on Fox News, you have these right-wing anchors who are pro-Trump coming out and trashing Zelensky, trashing the war. You know, Zelensky bravely left the front lines and Bakhmut and flew to Washington, D.C., wearing his, his famous green shirt uh, straight from the front lines as a hero, like a modern-day Winston Churchill, coming to America to speak to Congress. And when he was done, I, I was moved almost to tears at his bravery, at the eloquence of his delivery. And many Americans were. Many Americans love Ukraine. You see Ukrainian flags all over America. Downtown Manhattan, I was there last week. A, a giant skyscraper has a Ukrainian flag on it. But you still have that element on Fox News every night who are loyal to Trump and somehow find Zelensky to be unpalatable. After Zelensky gave that famous speech to Congress that brought me almost to tears, Fox News trashed him. I couldn't believe it. To me, defending Ukraine is an American principle. America is the arsenal of democracy. We are the ones who stood up for decades against Soviet aggression, whether it be the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, Lech Walesa Solidarnosc in Poland. We were there supporting these movements for freedom and independence. Uh, and of course, the Soviet Union collapsed. We were the first ones to move to try bringing these countries into NATO. But that Republican Party is no longer the party of Ronald Reagan, the great cold warrior who told Gorbachev, 
tear down this wall, Mr. Gorbachev. The Republican Party has become a, a cult of personality surrounding this egomaniacal, narcissistic, un-American leader, Donald Trump. So instead of being the arsenal of democracy, you have this right-wing members of this party, pro-Trump, who are insidiously pro-Vladimir Putin, who stands for everything Americans should hate. But it's not only Trump, uh, also such prominent figures as uh, Mersheimer or Kissinger uh, in the first uh, supported rather moderate involvement of the US in this war. Kissinger later changed his position. But how comes that there are so many uh, Republicans, Republicans well known for their uh, rather hawk position towards Russia that are now, well, not really interested in, in helping Ukraine? Yeah, and that, that, that shocks me. The, the Kissinger's comments, I, I felt, were irresponsible. He, he, he got criticized widely for his comments about, you know, not uh, having peace negotiations and trying to give Russia Donbass as, as a peace, you know, uh, sacrifice, essentially, to bring peace to Ukraine. Uh, he got roundly criticized for that. I, I understand that, you know, because Kissinger was famous, you know, for standing up to Soviet Union. Uh, back in the 70s and 60s when, when he was uh, running on foreign policy, to see him go from being a hawk to a dove and, and capitulate to Russian aggression to facts on the ground by giving the Russians the right to control uh, Donetsk and Luhansk because they conquered them, I found that to be unforgivable. And many, many Americans did too. And Kissinger was, was widely criticized and, and he later apologized for those comments. Maybe it's the fault of uh, their belief that the freedom of the nations is not the principle, but maybe they believe in this bipolar shape of the world where every big country, every empire has its zone of influence. You know, I'm not sure about that, but I will say this. There, on the right wing, there is this newfound love of strong men. You know, Viktor Orban in Hungary, for example, is being praised on Fox News. They, 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 they actually criticize Zelensky all the time and praise Putin. It's this weird fascination with strong men that comes from their fascination with Trump, who tried overthrowing our democracy on January 6th. You know, they, they, they see him as, as a, uh, a hero. And since he tells them, he tells a cult, because the Republican Party is now a cult. It's no longer the Republican Party, the grand old party, they used to call it, the GOP. It is now a cult of personality dominated by one man. Donald Trump. And when he tells them, I like Vladimir Putin, he's my friend. And he, he actually said invading Ukraine was a good idea at the beginning of the war. He called Putin a, a genius. Of course, Putin's not a military genius. He's a strategic blunder, uh, an idiot, what he's done in Ukraine. But still, that party is still under the thumb of Donald Trump. And uh, when he tells them to, to, to not like Zelensky, to not support Ukraine, and to instead love this mass murderer, this rapist, you know, this is the people who, who raped all, all the women in Bucha and put them on fire, when he tells them to support this murderer, these Republicans do it. And to me as American, I find it deeply offensive and un-American and undemocratic. In one of his books, uh, Yuri Fleshtinsky wrote that there are some Russian money behind Trump. Do you believe it? I wouldn't doubt it. You know, he did have a Trump hotel deal in Moscow. Um, we know that his family has had investments in Russia. Um, you know, with Trump, we don't really know. You know, uh, they released his taxes finally, so we have greater insights into wh who's, you know, pulling the strings behind him. But I think a lot of his love of, of, of Putin was because he knows that Putin helped him win the election. Putin interfered. In the 2016 elections, the GRU, uh, they uh, did all kinds of uh, robot you know, bots uh, 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 to d d disenfranchise voters in America. Putin got a chance to vote, and he voted for Trump 
against Hillary Clinton with his information disinformation campaign uh, in Russia. So I think Trump and many Republicans were grateful of all things, to Russia for interfering in our election in what I consider to be almost like a, a cyber Pearl Harbor attack. It was so devastating to have a foreign power put its finger on the scales of our election and, and help convince Americans to vote for Trump. Do you think there is a way to somehow overcome this crack, this gap that's dividing American society? I don't see so. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, the best thing that could happen for us is for Trump not to win the nomination for the Republican Party and have a more American leader, a more Democratic leader, uh, someone who actually believes in democracy instead of winning total power and keeping it almost like, like Vladimir Putin has done. The best hope for America is to have the Republican Party come back from being a cult of personality. Uh, but I'm not too optimistic. You know, Trump still is the power, unchallenged power behind the Republican Party. No one can really stand up to him. Uh, DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is trying to become a, a Trump wannabe, but, but he can't really go against Trump. Uh, we'll see uh, if the Republican Party can be saved, but the, it's so bipolar in America now, so binary. So many people can't stand Trump, and they hate his guts. They see him as un-American. They see him as undemocratic. They see him as, as someone who tried overthrowing our cherished democracy. Uh, you can't get those people to ever like Trump, and you can't get the Trump supporters whoever like Biden. I mean, it's really a divided country right now. Biden, in the beginning especially, seemed to be weak. Uh, the evacuation from Afghanistan was uh, really clumsy and, uh, well, it was finally okay, but but still, it could be, it could have been done far better. And uh, many people said that, well, he's maybe too old and maybe he doesn't really... Um, have this grasp of reality that the President of the United States uh, should have. And ironically, a lot of those people that are criticizing him for being too old were the ones who loved Ronald Reagan, who actually had Alzheimer's disease as he was President. Uh, I, I think his state of mind is just fine. Uh, as for the Afghan withdrawal, we should never forget that it was Trump and his Secretary of State Mike Pompeo who set up the Afghan withdrawal uh, uh, treaty with the Taliban. It was Trump and Pompeo who met with the Taliban in Doha and set up the plans for withdrawal. Uh, the Pentagon pushed back, kept pushing the date further back until it passed into Biden's time. Biden had to think about whether or not he would fulfill the Doha agreement set up by Trump for the U.S. withdrawal. I didn't want him to withdraw the troops from Afghanistan. I've spent considerable time in Afghanistan. I felt we weren't really fighting the war there anymore. We only had 2,000 troops there as the tip of the spear. They were supporting the Afghan army with drone strikes, uh, intelligence, training, weaponry, morale. We weren't taking casualties anymore, maybe one or two per year. The Afghans had stepped up and they were fighting for their own country. We were just supporting them. We could have done that indefinitely for years, decades to come, because it wasn't costing us blood and lives. Biden walked into this trap, signed by Trump at Doha with the Taliban, and he decided to honor the withdrawal treaty. The, the, the collapse of the Afghan army was, was almost unforeseen, though. I mean, I saw it coming. I worked with the Afghan National Army in Afghanistan. Uh, I worked with the U.S. military and Regional Command East and the CIA, uh, tracking suicide bombers. I had a feeling that Afghanistan was so weak. Compared to Ukraine, for example, uh, it was so divided tribally. It had no sense of central belief in a federal system that once you pulled the Americans out, like pulling the 300 Spartans fighting the Persian Empire out from battle, it would lead to the collapse of this fragile edifice we'd spent 20 years and $2 trillion building. Uh, 
the whole thing fell apart. It was the Afghan National Army that no longer had the will to fight once the Americans weren't symbolically there supporting them. Do you think this war, a war in Ukraine, uh, has a potential to become a world war? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, people will have these dark fears about nuclear weapons or more countries coming into it. But I think we're seeing Russia ground down in a, a tactical defeat that doesn't involve, uh, you know, crossing new borders. There were fears that maybe the Russians would cross into Poland, Lithuania, Estonia. They've been so thoroughly defeated. They can't even conquer uh, and control Donetsk and Luhansk. You know, there, there was talk about maybe Russia will go towards Odessa uh, or, or even Lviv in the West. Russia has been humiliated in this battle that is not about uh, gases or, or, or tactical nuclear weapons, but about old-fashioned World War II-style tank and trench warfare. So I don't think it's going to spread. You know, the only people involved in this war really is American NATO on one, one side with Ukrainians and the Russians. I don't see it metastasizing and spreading across the globe or, or involving more people in a, a global conflict. And what's stopping Russia from using nuclear weapons? The fear of self-annihilation. You know, that's, that's always the shadow. If Putin is worried about his legacy, as he is, that's always he launched this war to create the new great Russia, you know, uh, to rebuild the glory of Russia. Uh, if he is worried about his legacy, as he's facing his old age, and his legacy is the man who got Moscow nuked, the man who got St. Petersburg nuked, the man who destroyed Russian civilization, that doesn't benefit anybody. We have to count upon the fear of, of mutual self-destruction limiting them from using tactical nukes because if he does use a tactical nuke that is crossing the red line the rubicon and nato will intervene decisively uh we will bomb targets in ukraine uh we will hit them decisively and nato is a far greater power we've seen even our weaponry even our weaponry in the hands of ukrainians is crushing the russian offensives even though they have all these tens of thousands tens of thousands of reservists coming in just our weaponry alone without trained nato alliance fighting with them. Imagine if NATO, including the, the power of Germany, the Poles, the Turks are part of NATO too, a large army of NATO, and of course the Americans, when you have, and France, when all those powers come together with the training and equipment, and you put in F-22s and Raptors up against these outdated Sukhoi and MiG jets, they'll shoot them out of the skies in a matter of hours. It'll be as easy of a roller as the U.S. conquest of Iraq was. Uh, you said bombing uh, bombing targets in Ukraine. I uh, imagine you mentioned uh, like Donbass and, and Crimea, but also in Russia? It could be. I think if we see support lines, networks uh, coming over, uh, supporting the troops from those neighboring territories, you know, the, the southern military district uh, just across the border uh, inside Russia, yes, I think it is going to be an uh, attempt to cut off all supplies to decapitate the Russian army, and that means supply lines, perhaps train routes. You know, the Russian army runs on its trains. Destroy the tra trains, lines, cut off the army, and humiliate the Russians for crossing the, the world. E even the Chinese won't support the use of tactical weapons, or the Indians. You know, China's been sort of a, a neutral ally in this whole process, but as soon as you start throwing around nukes, Trust me, the Chinese will walk away from Russia, the Indians who are neutral will walk away, and I think you'll see Russia completely isolated and smashed on the battlefields of Ukraine. Last question. When will this war end? It's beyond my pay grade. Uh, I will say that you have, at the moment, no will to end the war from either side. You know, the Russians uh, are, are throwing in more and more troops. Wagner has thrown in more troops. You know, they have 50,000 troops. They've lost tens of thousands. Putin is vested, his, his, his reputation, his nation's 
reputation on this war. Poll after poll shows that Russians support Putin in this war. Across the small towns of Russia, they're suffering. Economically, they're seeing sons and husbands come home in caskets or with arms missing, but they're standing by him in this, this war that defines Russia. On the other hand, Ukrainians, they've seen the massacres uh, in Bucha, uh, the bombing of Mariupol, the theater, with Sedechi, children outside of it. They've seen the mass graves, Mariupol wiped off the map. They've seen the horrors, and the Ukrainians aren't willing to back down. And they feel as if the wind is behind their back. The wind is in their sails because they're getting the weaponry. They're getting the billions, billions and billions of dollars from America in particular. Uh, they're getting more and more high-tech te- weaponry. In, in many ways, Ukraine is being NATOized as we speak. It's the most rapid NATOification of a country I've ever seen. They are de facto NATO now. You know, they're, they're jumping the queue past many other countries and they are learning to work with NATO. They're using weapon systems. They're training in Britain and America to use the state-of-the-art M1 Abrams tanks. So there's no reason right now for Ukraine to have a peace negotiation, especially when they know one thing, Putin will just use it to gather more troops, to have more drafts, to throw in more cannon fodder, to die in this senseless slaughterhouse that has become Ukraine. So I don't think the war is going to end anytime soon because neither side has any initiative or momentum to end as we speak right now. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Great talking to you, Peter. This was The Political Periscope. The podcast is released every Thursday at 7 p.m. 